We're going to be uh, spending a few weeks talking about the topic of prayer, what prayer is, what it looks like, how we do it, that kind of thing. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to spend a couple of weeks talking about prayer in a way that has very little to do with prayer, with the act of prayer, I should say. What I want to do this morning is kind of set the stage for our hearts during prayer, what it looks like for us to approach God to, to say prayers. Um, and so for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about prayer in a way that doesn't actually address prayer itself. But these are also some of my uh, most passionate topics, so I'm definitely going to go off my notes this morning. I'm going to apologize in advance. It's going to in incorporate some of what we talked about last week um, into the... Oh yeah, my mask. Thank you. Good thing I have this extra stand. <laughs> um, it's going to incorporate some of what we talked about last week, uh, and then it'll roll into next week. I'm very excited for next week, so come back next week. We're going to learn some Hebrew words, uh, and we're really going to dig into who God is and, and how we approach him. Um, but this morning, I just kind of want to set the stage for that. Why don't we uh, just start off with a word of prayer? Um, last week, I, I kind of focused on the idea of God's presence, and we're going to talk about that more this morning, and that'll roll again right into next week's. But I just want to pray, uh, stop and pray, and just ask God that, that he would be here with us, that we would sense his presence speaking to us. So let's Let's just pause briefly and pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing blessing it is to be able to speak freely to you whenever we want, whenever we need, to share our hearts with you, to confess our sins to you, knowing that you will not punish us. You're not looking forward to, to smiting us with lightning bolts, but that you want to hear our confession, receive it, and bless our repentant attitude, to bless our humility. And God, we are so grateful for that. I just ask this morning, uh, as we just look into your word, as we reflect back on thousands of years of, of your people seeking you out, that you would help us to know you better this morning. Help us to sense your presence with us. Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us this morning in a powerful way. We pray for those who are not able to be here, that they would still sense your presence. We pray for those who are uh, watching online, who are joining us online, that they would feel just as much a part of this church family as we do here. And God, would you send your presence to them as well. May we be changed by just this short time being with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So last week I talked a lot about uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and, and looking at how that rolled into Jesus coming and all that. It's a big picture understanding of the scripture. Last week we actually went from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. Um, right? Pretty impressive for, what, half hour, 40 minutes, whatever. We're going to go back to look at Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit, but I want to kind of uh, return back to that idea that in the creation accounts in Genesis, uh, God is setting the stage for, or he's creating a sanctuary, a sacred space where he can be with his people and his people can worship God. And we're going to look a little bit at, at that this morning and how that, uh, that particular portion of creation carries through all of Scripture. The themes that are established in those first two chapters of Genesis carry all the way through Scripture. God's presence, the idea of God's presence with his people emerges as a theme that will carry all through Scripture. And it climaxes really at Christmas time when we talk about Emmanuel, God with us that God himself came to be physically with us on this earth. And then Easter, 
is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So all of human history, if you think about it, in, in all of human history, you know, where are we at? Maybe we'll just ballpark 10,000 years, right, of human history. Jesus was alive for around 33 years, which is just a blink in all of human history. And yet that moment was central to everything that God was doing from beginning to end and for all of eternity. All of human history hinges on that short moment where Jesus was with us. Jesus' name in Hebrew was Yeshua. That word Yeshua means to deliver, to rescue. So that was the moment that God sent his son to rescue his people. But again, back to Genesis 1 and 2, we talked about how God created everything, and then within that creation, he planted the garden. And that garden was a sanctuary. Later on in the scriptures, we know that uh, after sin, people fell away from God. There was that cycle of death that we mentioned last week. And God was separated from his people because of our sin. There was a brokenness between his presence and his, his people. But down the line, God chose Abraham, a single man, to call him out and to prepare for himself a people from Abraham. And so over and over and over through the Old Testament, we hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, Jacob's name was changed to Israel by God himself. And then Israel had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God's people continued to grow. And we know those 12 tribes ended up in Egypt. And then the Pharaoh forgot who they were and they were enslaved. And, and that's when we got to that Passover story that we looked at last week. God pulls his people out of slavery in Egypt through Moses, Moshe. And he guides them through the desert. And within the course of that path, he instructs them to build a tabernacle, to build a portable sanctuary so that he can be with his people and they can worship him. Exodus 25, 8 and 9, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. So shall you make it. And so the design of the tabernacle, first of all, was not designed by people. It wasn't humans trying to express their understanding of God. It was God revealing to them what he wanted the sanctuary to look like. And that sanctuary, there's so much detail and so much symbolism built into that sanctuary. It's, it, you could probably preach on it for a year. I won't. Um, but a lot of the design of the tabernacle refers back to the garden refers back to that first sanctuary. I want to read Genesis chapter 2. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put man, the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of the Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So it's an interesting description, and there's some, some interesting details in there that you might scratch your head and wonder why they included it. Why does it say uh, the Havilah, where there is gold? 
Why does it refer to gold? Aromatic resin and onyx were also there. It's been suggested that uh, in Eden, the garden has kind of a threefold flow from it. So if you focus on that river, you have Eden, or the garden itself, Eden as the river's source. That's where the river came from. That's where it flowed from. The garden is the area through which the river runs. And then the division of the river into four streams brings it out even farther from that central point. That has been paralleled to the tabernacle structure itself. So we're going to take a look at a video in just a minute about the tabernacle and what it looks like. And we're going to talk a lot about how it was built and what some of the symbolism was. But the tabernacle was uh, kind of imagined a, a tent fence. And within that fence there was a building. And that building was cut in two. And so you have the courtyard. You have the building is called the holy place, and that building's cut in two, and the back portion of that is where God's presence was, was said to dwell, and that was called the holy of holies. And so you think about that threefold flow from the river has been likened to the most holy place or the holy of holies where God's presence is meant to be. The river, it says it mentions the entire land of Havla where there's gold. Gold is meant to symbolize royalty. And the holy of holies was covered in gold. That centerpiece was gold. Flowing out from there, oh, I should also mention there's one person once a year, we'll talk about this, that can go in that space. The, the larger part of the building, the holy place, priests can go in there, but it's restricted to only priests. So that would be like the garden where the river flows from. And then the courtyard is where the people can be. And so the rivers divide into four and they continue out into the world. And in the same way, God's glory continues out to the people. The tabernacle was a forerunner of the temple. We know Jesus interacted with the temple. So we're going to talk specifically about the tabernacle. But uh, the tabernacle was later made a permanent building by King Solomon. And then later on, that, that building was destroyed. It was rebuilt later on for Jesus' time. That was actually the second temple. Um, but that temple was structured as effectively the same as the tabernacle. In fact, it's been suggested by some that the tabernacle itself was inside of that temple. And I don't think that's been proven, but that's just one, one theory. But it's set up very similarly. But again, it's a sanctuary. God said to Moses, build me a sanctuary. Build me a place where I can come and dwell among you, and you can worship me. You can know that my presence is with you. And yet built within even that structure, we know from the garden, right? Remember the parents? You can touch anything you want. Don't touch this tree. What, this one? I know. No, none of you would do that, I'm sure. But my, my own faults, I would probably do it. But we know that when mankind disobeyed God, he was separated from the garden, right? He was kicked out of the garden, and he was kicked out of God's presence, and it's interesting that that was a consequence of their sin, but Genesis also makes it clear that was a protection of his people. It was a consequence, it was a negative result, but also included God's protection. It displays God's justice, because mankind disobeyed God. We denied God the authority to, to define what's right and wrong, and he can't stand for that. Just as a parent, if your kid is disobeying you, you can't just turn your back on that for their own protection, and for their own consequences. So God's justice is displayed, and yet it says that he clothed them with animal skins. So his mercy is still being displayed. 
So what we're going to do this morning is uh, we're going to take a quick kind of big picture look at the tabernacle, how it's set up, uh, some of the different dynamics of it and the symbolism of it. Um, again, it was instructed by God to Moses. Those instructions are found in Exodus 25 to 31 and then again in 35 to 40. So if you want to read up on it, if you go to Exodus 25 and kind of read towards the back. Um, but again, we want to bear in mind that the description of the tabernacle was not something that they came up with. It wasn't the Israelites who designed it. It was God himself who gave them that design. So what we're going to do is just watch a quick video that'll give you some sense of it, like a visual sense of the different elements in the tabernacle, and then I'm going to quickly talk through some of uh, what was there. So I, I could be wrong about this. I do not believe the ancient Hebrews would have had Gregorian chant, but <laughs> uh, visually you get kind of just some sense of what the temple would have looked or the tabernacle would have looked like. Now, the tabernacle as a thing is kind of a foreign idea to us because like as Christians especially, we're used to being able to pray whenever we want, right? We kind of understand that God is with us, he's everywhere and all that. But if you put yourself in the place of the ancient Israelites, from the time of Adam and Eve and that first sin, there was separation. They weren't able to be with God the way that we are able to be with God. And so for generations, there was, there was always kind of this distance between God and man. And then when God chose Abraham, he chose him, Abram, I should say, he chose him out of a poly, polytheistic culture. So probably he lived in a, in a culture where there were different gods and goddesses for different things. And this God suddenly appears and says, I'm going to choose you to, be, to, to form for me my people, and I want you to go to this place. And what, what amazing faith for Abraham to just pick up his family and follow this God, this new God. And in the course of history, God continues to, to get closer and closer and closer to this people. And then he tells Moses, I want you to build me a sanctuary, build me a physical representation of my presence with you. How special would that be to them? So everywhere they went, as they, as they traveled through the desert, everywhere they went, if they had a question about where's God, what's he doing, and they had many questions, if you remember, but they could always look to that tabernacle and know, okay, he's there, he's there. But now, even just that subtle difference, when we talk about God, he's here. For them, he's there. So it was a physical location for God. It was an amazing blessing for them to have that. You saw that the tabernacle was, was kind of fenced in, we'll call it, by white linen walls. They were about seven and a half feet tall. And then the gate, again, it was, it was made of linen, but that gate, that entryway into the tabernacle itself, was made of blue, purple, scarlet, and white linen. And all those colors represent royalty. It's a special thing. It takes a lot to make those colors. So that was the entrance into the courtyard, uh, which was known as the tabernacle of the congregation. That was a place where the Israelites themselves could enter, could offer their sacrifices or bring them to the priests, and the priests would do the actual sacrifice. But that was where they kind of got their contact with the priestly line that was dealing with God. In that courtyard, uh, we saw the bronze altar. That was where sacrifices were made. Um, and then burnt offerings followed as well. Some of the sacrifices turned into barbecue. Most people don't realize that, but we think they killed the animal and then there was a big pile of dead animals. But very often God allowed them the blessing of being able to eat from the meat that they sacrificed. We saw the laver, uh, that big birdbath looking thing. That was meant to symbolize cleansing. So the priests would use that before they went into the holy place. 
that was a place of cleansing, a place where they would ceremonially, ceremonially wash themselves. Now, the tabernacle building, again, was called the holy place because it was set apart. The word holy, we're going to look at that next week, but the word holy means set apart. It's special. It's unique. So that building was called the holy place. Again, it was uh, gold-covered boards. It was gold-covered wood, that gold indicating royalty, again, paralleling Eden. The door, uh, again, just linen, was blue, purple, scarlet, and white linen, again. And then within that inner place, uh, as you go into that back room, or excuse me, that front room, on the right, you would have the table of showbread. Uh, again, it was made of wood overlain with gold. On the left, on the left was a lampstand, or what, what Jews now call the menorah, right? You've probably seen the menorah around Hanukkah. There would have been a, a menorah there of solid gold. And then straight ahead was an altar of incense, and they would constantly burn incense there. The smoke would represent God's presence, but it was also to represent the prayers of his people going up to God. About two-thirds of the way back in that holy place, there was another curtain. There was a veil. The veil was made from blue, purple, scarlet, and white, fine, twisted linen. Uh, but then if you noticed in the video, there were gold cherubim sewn into the veil. Gold angels, cherubim. As we get to that point, I want to go back to Genesis 3 again, to when Adam and Eve had first sinned and God was dealing with that. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed to the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So that tree of life, again, if you remember last week, it's referring to God's presence, right? And so in the garden... For their protection, God banished them out of the garden, and he put cherubim, angels, between them and the tree of life, between them and God's presence. And so here, within the holy place, we have this veil, and the veil has those golden cherubim. So it's representing, just like Eden, that God's presence is there, but there's a separation. There's a barrier. As I understand it, uh, that veil between the holy place and the holy of holies was about 18 inches thick. It was, it was not a curtain you would hang on your window. It was a thick, heavy curtain. And it represented that barrier that sin created. Within the holy place uh, was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Indiana Jones fans, anyone? Ark of the Covenant? Okay, you're with me. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant uh, was covered by the atonement cover, it was called, or the mercy seat which was solid gold, and that also had statues of cherubim carved into it with their wings extending to one another. And that back room, that holy of holies, so that's, if holy means set apart, the holy place was set apart. The holy of holies was set apart from what's set apart. That was a special place. And that was where God's very presence dwelled among his people. The Ark, Ark of the Covenant that was in that back room, contained the tablets of the, 12, of the Ten Commandments, not twelve. Uh, there was a memorial jar of manna, which symbolized God providing for the Israelites in the desert, and then Aaron's rod that budded. And as you consider that symbolism, 
the Ten Commandments were uh, God's requirements of Israel. They were the law, the Torah, instruction. But they also, in a sense, reminded the people of the judgment against sin. The Ten Commandments were such that they were a blessing from God, so people knew exactly what God required of them, but it also reminded them that they fall short of that holiness all the time. And so it would remind them of judgment. The manna, however, reminds them of God's provision, that he cared for them through the desert. He's providing. And then the rod that budded, that rod would have been dead wood, but the buds would represent new life, that God can bring new life from death. When the Israelites received their instruction, uh, some of the first people who were said to be filled by the Holy Spirit were artists who were putting in work towards what God was doing here. When it was all completed, when it was all constructed, in Exodus 40, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So when they, when they finished construction of this tabernacle, this sacred space, God's glory came in such a way that even Moses himself was not able to approach. One of the most holy uh, ceremonies or festivals in the Jewish faith is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, it, it fits right into the whole construction theme of the tabernacle. Within that tabernacle space, again, the courtyard, people could go into the courtyard to do different things. But the people who worked in the tabernacle were the priests. So the priests had special access, special jobs to do. They would perform sacrifices and uh, keep the incense burning and things like that. But the priests themselves could go in the holy place, no one else. So common people couldn't come in off the street and go into that holy space. But the priests had certain jobs that they could go into the holy place. They could go into that place closer to God, and they had different things going on there. But even the priests could not go into the Holy of Holies. Where God's presence was, no one was allowed. If you went in God's presence, you would die. But one time a year, one man, who was the high priest, could go in to that holy place. And one time a year, he would perform sacrifices for, the, for all of the people of Israel. One day a year. So the high priest himself normally had a very ornate garment that he would wear with jewels on it. And, and again, there's all kinds of symbolism involved in that. But on that day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, he would begin the day with his, with his normal clothing on. He would do his normal sacrifices. He would burn the incense, keep the smoke going. Then he would, again, have a, a time of washing, of cleansing, and he would put on simple white clothes, plain white garments. And in a sense, he would symbolize the Savior, Jesus, as we know him, who left his heavenly throne, left the glory of his throne, and set it aside to dress himself in plain humanity. Two goats were designated by the high priest, one for the Lord and one as a scapegoat. The high priest would, uh, do, again, these are just ceremonies that he had to go through. They would have a young bull that he would place his hands on, symbolizing that he is imparting his sin 
the sins of his family and the sins of the other priests and their families on this bull. And they would sacrifice that bull. And they would catch the blood to be used for later in the ceremony. Through the course of this, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in great humility. And he would burn incense, again symbolizing God's presence, right? He would re-enter with some of the blood from the bull. And seven times he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. And that was a symbol of forgiveness and reconciliation, allowing him to come before God's presence. And then he would go back out and they would kill that goat that was designated for the Lord and catch the blood. And again, that was meant to be for a covering for the people. So the high priest again would go into the Holy of Holies and seven times he would sprinkle blood from that goat for the people of Israel. But it's amazing to consider when we think of the freedom that we have to come before God, that they had that separation. They had a physical, tangible representation that God was with his people, and yet there was still separation. There was still distance, such that only one man, one time a year, with ceremonial cleansings and with sacrifices and with blood, only one time a year he could come before God's presence to assure the people of their forgiveness of sins. And only that high priest. And we're going to see that it's only by the shed blood of Christ, who is our high priest, that we can come before God. After the sacrifices were done, the high priest would take the scapegoat and he would place his hand on the scapegoat, again symbolically transferring the sins of all the people of Israel to that one goat. And they would drive it out into the desert. And it was during that time, you remember we talked about the names of God. Elohim is kind of a generic name, but God gave his people later on his personal name. Yod, He, Vav, He, those are the consonants. They didn't put vowels to it because they considered it so sacred they wouldn't speak of it. But on this one day on Yom Kippur, the high priest, as he was praying over the scapegoat, would speak the holy personal name of God. And then again, that, that goat that was innocent, because it's a goat, would be driven out to die in the desert in place of the people of Israel. So you can kind of see a lot of the symbolism that overlaps with what Christ did for us. The word atonement itself in Hebrew is kafar. It means to cover, to blot out, to cancel. So this whole process was to cancel out the people's sin, to cover their sin. When Jesus went into the garden to pray, the night he was arrested, if you remember, he brought his disciples into the garden to pray. He knew what was coming. That's the night that he was sweating blood. He was in such uh, agony, such anxiety was overwhelming him. But if you remember, he went to the, to the garden and he brought his disciples and they stopped and they prayed. And then he went on a little farther with Peter, James, and John. And they prayed. And then Jesus himself went alone. A little farther. And again, what he was doing was demonstrating the atonement of sin that was right on the doorstep because it symbolizes the tabernacle. The people came to the outer courts, right? He brought his disciples with him, his followers with him, but he only brought those three few a little farther. Only the priests were allowed in the holy place. And then to go 
still farther into God's presence. It was only the high priest that could go. And so Jesus in that moment was demonstrating that he is the high priest that was going before God's presence on our behalf. And again, it's only through shed blood that that person could do that. And we know that Jesus himself became our scapegoat. He took our sins on himself. He took our burdens, our hurts, our fears. He took all of that on himself, and he died for us. And his blood covers our sin. We have the atonement because of what Jesus did, that covering. Now again, we talked about how all of this was not set up by man. This was all God dictating to his people how to build this tabernacle. And, and within that, all that symbolism was from God. It was a message to us. And in Hebrews 9, I want to read a portion of that that speaks about what that symbolism was symbolizing. It says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly in the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So within that time, the ancient Israelites, when they would do this uh, tabernacle process, the sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, all of that would allow them to have God's presence among them. And yet they still didn't feel fully atoned because they knew it was temporary. They knew on the Day of Atonement it was a great celebration, and yet they knew they would have to do it next year because they would continue to sin. The writer of Hebrews continues on, But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them, set them apart, so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. 
So what they're saying there is that first covenant that established the tabernacle system was meant to be temporary. It was known to be temporary. But what's amazing is that God who dictated that was dictating something that exists in heaven, in his presence. And that is the tabernacle that Christ went into. And because Christ was the Lamb of God, he was unblemished because he was God himself. He didn't have to continue to sacrifice over and over and over. He didn't have to sacrifice for his own cleansing. He could sacrifice on our behalf. And because he's eternal, that sacrifice lasts for all eternity. So it sets us free. The new covenant that Jesus referred to in the Lord's Supper is the fact that his blood is now our covering for all eternity. In Matthew 27, this is part of the, the Holy Week story. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. This is as Jesus is hanging on the cross. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there had heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And then it goes on to tell what happened at the exact moment that Jesus died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke apart. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. That's an amazing moment. But the symbolism that takes place is unbelievable. Within that tabernacle system, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies separated man from his presence. And even though God was with his people, he still wasn't fully present. They couldn't come before him. And yet at that moment, the moment that Jesus died, the moment that our sins with him died, the, the veil itself was torn in two. And lest we think that, that the priests snuck in or the disciples snuck in and ripped it, it specifically says it tore from top to bottom, which indicates that God's the one that tore it. And again, this was not a, a window curtain. This was a thick, foot-and-a-half thick curtain. Did you ever rip a phone book in half? I mean, I can do it, but most people can't. <laughs> that veil could not be torn by people. And so with all that symbolism of the tabernacle, of the temple, pointing back to creation, and all of it pointing people to God's presence, God was saying to us, that veil, that separation, that sin has been taken care of. It's been torn in two, and the way has been opened for us to come before him. Ancient Israel had the covering of their sins through the sacrificial blood of goats and lambs and bulls. And only once a year did we have that Day of Atonement. But we can continually come before God 
because Jesus Christ took our sin on himself once and for all. The separation that we experience as human beings from God caused by our sin was removed by Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, when he died on the cross for us. I want to read a scripture from 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 9. It says, But you, speaking to believers in Christ, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Think back to all the symbolism of the Old Testament and realize that Peter is now saying that to you. You are a chosen people, just as God chose Abraham as God developed his ancestors into the nation of Israel, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I won't speak for you, I will speak only for myself, but very often I take God's grace for granted because I know I'm forgiven. I know Jesus died for me, and so I'm forgiven, and so I can come before God. But I think it's important for us to pause sometimes and to realize how amazing that is, to not take it lightly, to be amazed by the fact that God chose you from all humanity, God chose you to be part of his chosen people. That he considers you precious. And not only that, he gives you great value beyond just being his chosen vessel, but he gives you a job that should give us pride. We are priests. And what do the priests do? The priests are the ones that attend to the tabernacle. The priests are the ones that go into the holy place that attend to the prayers of the people. And we know that that veil has been torn, so as we go into the holy place, we can go into the holy of holies before God himself. I have homework for you this week. Get used to that. This homework is simple, but it's not easy. Psalm 46, As, before I read it, I want to I set your mind to this. What's going on in your life? If life is good right now, you probably have a family and a job and responsibilities and bills and things to do, people to see, right? That's if your life is good right now. I know some people are struggling. Some people have physical issues, financial issues. Uh, COVID is enough to throw anyone for a loop. Lives, our lives get busy, our lives get complicated, our lives get difficult, we face trials. And so in the midst of that, I want you to hear the words of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river 
whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within here. She will not fall. God will help her at break of dawn. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And here's your homework that is very simple, but very difficult. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As we contemplate prayer, I have heard sermon after sermon after sermon about prayer, and it's always how to pray. And, and there's often a structure to it where you come before God and you worship him, and then you do this, and then you bring your requests, and then whatever. Before we get there, before we consider what it means to pray and how to do it, um, I always joke I'm going to write a book someday called Being and Doing. And in the scriptures, I think God very often is teaching us how to be, meaning who are you? Who has God designed you to be? Who has he created you to be? And sometimes I think it's important for us to just be. Just be who you are. And then the other half of what God calls us to is doing. God has things for us to do. God has gifted each one of us in a unique way. So he has a job for us to do. He has ministry for us to do. But very often we jump on the doing and we skip over the being. And the doing should come from the being. We should do because of who we are in Christ. And so this week, your homework is to be still. It's awkward, right? <laughs> what was that, like 10 seconds? I was coming, breaking into a cold sweat up here. Our culture especially is so fast-paced. We have so many responsibilities, so many things going on. And when we don't, we cram stuff into the empty space. So that short drive we have to work, we're putting the radio on, we're listening to podcasts or whatever we're doing. When we have downtime, we usually fill it up with something. We're doing. My homework for you this week is to be. Be still. Realize the blessing that it is to come into God's presence. And I believe if we can get into the habit of that, if we can get into our headspace where we can stop and be still, it can revolutionize the way we pray. Because very often when we come to God in prayer, we're doing. So we fire off to God the things that we need to say to get it done, check the box, and move on in life. Because we're busy people. But if we can get in the habit of being, be still. It can change our lives. It can change our 
spirits forever. So this week, I want you to pick at least two days. Go for three or four if you're ambitious. But at least two days and carve out, depending on how, how anxious you are. Some of you are sweating just hearing me start to say this. I know it. If you can carve out 15 or 20 minutes to be still. And all I want you to do, this is very not pastory of me to say, don't bring your Bible. Don't bring your requests. Find 15 or 20 minutes where you, you, you might start with a prayer, God, I'm here. And then sit quietly. And just let God speak to your heart. It's simple. I'm telling you to do nothing. That is simple. And it'll be the longest 15 minutes of your life. <laughs> if you can carve it out 15 or 20 minutes a couple times this week to just sit in God's presence. Next week when we come back, um, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm recycling a sermon that I did, not because I just want to be lazy, but it was so meaningful to me what God revealed to me through it. But we're going to start to look at who God is. How does God reveal himself through Scripture? And so this week, as we sit still in his presence, and we just, we're just washed over by being with him, then next week we'll combine that with God revealing himself to us. Who is God? How do we understand God? We take for granted. Again, we can come in God's presence anytime. We can pray anytime. We know Jesus was here. But who is God? And then from there, once we're comfortable being in God's presence, when God starts to speak to us about who he is, then we can approach God. Then we can start to doing. And it'll change our prayer life as a church. I truly believe that. Let's start off now. Here's what I'm going to do. Ready? I'm going to close us in prayer. And I'm going to start off with a time of quiet. And it's going to be agonizing for all of us, myself included. Just recognize God's presence here. And then I'll close this in prayer. Father, what, what we did just now feels very unnatural to us, to just sit quietly, to sit still. 
God, for myself this morning, as we just begin to consider what it means to pray, what it means to speak to you, I confess to you that I, I often rush it. God, forgive me. Too often I'm just trying to get it done. I'm trying to check the box so I can say I did what I was supposed to do as a good Christian. And I take for granted how amazing it is that you offer us your presence. It's amazing to consider the narrative of the Bible that our sin separates us from you, that we lost your presence because of our disobedience. And in your justice, there are consequences to that. Lord, as we prayed over our country earlier, Lord, we see some of those consequences. There's so much disunity right now, so much anger, so much pent-up frustration. There's so much sin being exported from our country. Because we are we are denying your presence. We're taking your presence for granted. God, would you help us this week to just find space? Not to find space, but to create space where we can just be with you. And God, in all humility, we are asking that you would send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way in those times so that we can know without a doubt that you are with us. That you are our God and we are your people. Draw us in with your presence. And then as we continue in the weeks ahead to look at what it means to pray, Lord, I pray that you would just send your Holy Spirit to each one of us to relearn what it means to come before you to truly understand the authority that you have given us as your priests, as your people, as your disciples. Help us to understand the power that we have access to through your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would change each one of us through this process. Change each one of us individually. Change us as a church as we come before you, as we enter the Holy of Holies. And Lord, would you change this neighborhood and this city because we are here seeking out our Father in heaven. Teach us what it means to come before your presence. Teach us what it means to pray truly from the depths of our souls to you. May we be a changed people that then change the area around us, God. We love you. We thank you. We praise you for the many blessings that you shower down on us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You're all dismissed.